0: day is where it all comes together all of the practice you've done in the pool in your mind and in open water pays off here you can stand on the start dock and laugh with your friends you can watch the sunrise and appreciate the swish of the waves and the call of the shorebirds you can joke about how you look in that dorky suit and wonder about whether you have time to go to the restroom one more time or not and you can obsess about making sure your timing chip is still on your ankle the one thing you won't be doing is worrying about whether you'll live or die and losing that worry is the best feeling in the world
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast.
2: Hey, everyone. uh, Welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Joining us this morning is Ali Meeks, the founder of Ready, Set, Sweat, a uh, triathlon coaching uh, organization in uh, northern Alabama, I believe. Uh, Ali's got a pretty in-depth history in uh, swimming, and this is why she's on our show today. Uh, she swam for the uh, Dayton Raiders as a youth, and uh, she was a Div 1 swimmer for Miami in, uh, in college recently she's been uh, she's been coaching since 2013 which coincidentally is when x3 started so uh, <laughs> a little bit of a coincidence there and she's got quite a bit of a, a race history under her belt Ali thank you very much for your time and uh, welcome to the show
0: thanks so much super excited to be here
2: so uh, a reasonable place to start would be um, maybe fleshing out some of that uh, some of that history that you have in swimming because it is it is swimming that we uh, have you on the show to talk about today specifically the psychology of overcoming some of the the fear of uh, of open water swimming in uh, triathlon? So take us through your your history in swimming, please.
0: Sure. So I was that little kid that did not want to get out of the pool when mom said it was time to go. That was kind of of my very humble beginnings and dealt with a lot of um, getting in trouble from mom for not wanting to leave. And it was just a passion that I've always had. My mom said the reason she got me into swim lessons was because I would jump off the side of the pool and come up laughing. And she thought this isn't normal. You know, most kids cry when they get water in their mouth. So she knew right away that there was something to it. So she got me interested in swimming. And then I got interested in swim team as a high schooler and started competing and working at a little bit of a higher level and then decided to take that to college at Miami university in Oxford, Ohio for a year. And I really enjoyed my career there and enjoyed swimming And I also, at that time, became more interested in doing outdoor things. So I kind of stepped away from swimming for a few years and came back to it with the advent of triathlon. And I had a friend who was into marathoning. And so she kind of got us into that. And then one other friend said, hey, you you know how to swim. You're a good runner, you know, marathoner. Why don't you just get a bike and you could be a triathlete? And I thought... Isn't that just for, you know, shrink-wrapped hard bodies? Uh, not, not normal people. Uh, but I decided to go for it. And so it became evident right away that swimming was my best sport in the race. And um, just right away, just decided that that was a great, you know, thing for me because I could kill everybody in the beginning of the race and then just kind of watch them pass me the rest of the way. <laughs> <laughs> So that's a little bit of my
2: swimming history. Nice. And so uh, what was the once you started coaching, I, I imagine that you started seeing folks who had uh, perhaps a tougher time than you uh, in the water and a, kind of like the, the, I will use myself as a classic example. I'm a a very kind of average swimmer who who then ends up catching some of you. Some of you fish on the bike course. Okay. Um, so it's never been you know I, I my experience swimming has never been the same as yours of uh, of coming up laughing out of the water. It's usually, my, uh, my thought process coming out of the swim is like, okay, now the race begins. <laughs> I'm, g- I'm glad that part of it is done. So there's, um, I think, and I, I know from, you know, from my coaching practice and from speaking with folks, I'm not alone in that. Um, and I get the sense that your latest project, um, can really help, uh, people who don't have that, that, you know, born natural love of water.
0: Yes, that's true. Uh, you're speaking of the book, conquer your fear of the triathlon swim, I guess.
2: That's correct. Yeah, this is why this is why you reached out in the first place. I was kind of teasing that out. That's right. So tell us about that that book and then and the the philosophy behind it and how it came to be.
0: Sure. Yeah, so the genesis of the book came about because so fast forward from my college years through an entire career as a marine biologist, that was my first career. Uh, but I'd always gotten into, you know, marine biology because of fish and water and the aspect of being near the beach and things I love to do. And so because I enjoyed that career, um, I was kind of coming to the end of my interest in it and was looking at the other things I like to do. And I thought, you know, I can make make a career out of this, what I like to do with swimming and triathlon. Cause it seems like it's something that I know a lot about that not a lot of triathletes know a lot about, or that don't have a lot of experience with. Mm-hmm. And I could really help people enjoy the sport more. Just what you said about how, you know, the first part of the race for you, the swim is kind of like, yeah, let's just get done with it. I wanted to help people really enjoy all three of the legs of the sport like I did. And I wanted to, to make it easier for them to have entry into the sport and not have as much of a barrier and certainly not have you know fear and anxiety about it and make it something that sounds like fun. So, what happened there was I had started a company doing swimming instruction and triathlon coaching. And I was working with all manner of people in swimming, kids, adults, everybody in between. And I noticed that the people that I was teaching in the learn to swim arena had some of the same needs and questions as the people triathletes that had fear and anxiety. And how that came to be was I had gotten certified in a method of teaching adults that is called miracle swimming. And that method is really aimed at people who have fear of the water, anxiety of the water. And these are beginners, like raw beginners, people who have never, ever swum. Some of them never been to a pool, never put their feet in the water, never even thought about putting on a bathing suit. And so these are adults who their whole life have gone through that which um, a lot of people tell me seems unusual to them, but actually is very common. There's about 46 percent of American adults are afraid of open water, and 64 sorry, deep water, and 64 percent are afraid of deep open water, and that's from a Gallup poll in 1988. And so there's actually, you know, it's almost a majority of people in the U.S. at least are have, have some fear with the water. So, so these folks that are that are using this, you know, that are we, we are teaching using this method. There's a lot of them, and they have, you know, significant hurdles to overcome with with um, with their fear.
2: Right, and uh, Andrew pointed this out when we were doing the preamble, but it's this isn't uh, this isn't confined to. Uh the fear of open water, I mean, isn't confined to just brand new beginner swimmers like the folks that you were starting to work with. This uh, this uh, presents itself in some very experienced swimmers as well, doesn't it?
0: That's right. Absolutely. And, and that's exactly what happened is I started to notice using this miracle swimming method uh, that some of the things that we were presenting to the beginning swimmers very much applied to those who were already considered themselves swimmers. And and so I thought, huh, you know, there seems like a crossover here where these two things kind of are converging. And so I actually, this is very, you know, common in my life. I just cold called the lady who developed the method, who I already knew, <laughs> had been certified in the method. As you know, I cold called you and said, hey, what about this book? I think people That's would right, like Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I have no problem, you know, because what are they going to say? No. So I just, I called her up and said, hey, look, you know, you've got this great method. And I think triathletes need to hear about this. Um, And she actually already had a book written and does have a book written that's called Conquer Your Fear of Water. And that book is really, like I said, it's it's really focused on the beginner world. And so I just didn't think that triathletes would look for it. I didn't think they would pick it up, read it. It would not be on their radar. So I said, hey, we need to kind of take this method and package it and make it something that, that they would actually look to and that it would be for them so that they can hear the same great message that we have for them
1: it's it's really such an interesting problem um and especially with the background i come from which is almost a mix of of your experience and michael's um where when i was young i was the the kid who would never get out of the pool and i would always be swimming and i went through all the swimming lessons um actually so fast that i had to wait until i got older To progress to the next level (laughs) um and that that was actually the the holdup was i got to this point where i had to wait until i was 13 to do a bronze cross certification and i never got back into it and that was the the hiccup that kind of prevented me from continuing on with swimming um, because my parents were always enthusiastic and saying you know you're actually pretty quick you should you should pursue this but uh it was it feels like a missed opportunity now um, and then as I got older, um, like I was always in the pool, I was always a fairly decent swimmer, fa- fairly confident. Um, but as I got older, I started to, um, to, well, to get back in or to get into triathlon and I thought, okay, I've got this swimming's no problem. I'm quick. There's, you know, I have no issues with fear. And then my first race, it was just a complete disaster. <laughs> it was a very classic first race with a bunch of beginner mistakes and, I think from that I was maybe a little bit scarred, um, or I developed a little bit of a fear, and that kind of carried on through quite a number of events afterwards. And it, it's taken a while to actually get over that.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and um, that's a very common story for a lot of people. And the and it's nothing to be you know ashamed of, or you know a lot of people tell me like, oh yeah, we really had this bad experience. I feel bad about it. And It's like no, no, you know, hey, this is this is part of it. This is part of learning. We're all learning. We're learning how to do sport. We're learning how to be athletes. Uh, but one thing that we note in the book and that we, that we really try to, to delineate and talk about in terms of being a swimmer is really, there are kind of, if you can kind of open your mind a little bit to think about like, what does it mean to be a swimmer? We kind of can think of, there's really two sides to swimming. There's the safety side and knowing how to keep yourself safe. And that has to do with, um, being able to use your back float for your safety, for being able to prevent yourself from panicking to know how the water works, literally the physics of how it works and how your buoyancy works and how that side of things uh, aff- affects you and how your wa- your body works with the water. And there's this side. And then there's really the choreography side. My colleague, Chris Kennedy kind of coined that term for the choreography of swimming, which is about moving from A to B in a certain way, u- using your arms and legs, um, to create certain movements like breaststroke and freestyle and all that. So if we kind of parse it out that way, then it makes it a little bit easier to understand why someone with the choreography can still have problems because maybe there are some underpinnings, you know, the uh, philosophies or just understanding, misunderstandings in the swimming side. That's the safety side that is are either aren't articulated or haven't been articulated to them in swim lessons or in their swim life. If they taught themselves, uh, but, but might really, be helpful for them to understand
2: going forward. Hmm. I really like that decoupling of the two because uh, you're absolutely right. If you have someone who is, let's say, a strong pool swimmer, and I've coached a few who have, you know, a similar background to you, you know, swam for university, college, um, and then they're, you know, they were quite competitive, uh, and then they get into open water, and they're they just they they, they completely fall apart. And it's it's interesting because then you know they maybe they're that that first phase of it that having to learn to be comfortable in the water is so far back in their swimming history, or maybe they learned it in a pool. And then when they're faced with a different environment, then it's a very, you know, it's, it's a totally different, uh, it's a totally different situation because of course, you know, one of the things that you hear people say about why they're uncomfortable in open water is that they can't see the bottom. And when they can see the bottom, they feel okay. But as soon as that, you know, that visibility drops or they're in slightly deeper water, that's when people get really, well, some people get, get, uh, get a little bit freaked out. So, um, yeah, I really like that way of thinking about it because it, it also makes, it also, I think we're, as triathletes and swimming, obviously being a key part of it, where often our identity is wrapped up in our ability to perform and execute. And uh, it can sometimes be a real, a real mental setback for someone who, um, you know, whose identity is that of a strong swimmer who then cannot overcome, you know, their anxiety of open water and that, that causes a lot of really negative downstream effects of, uh, of, you know, performance anxiety, et cetera.
0: That's right. And you just said it right there about not being able to see the bottom. So I just want to kind of, to, to piggyback on that a little bit, the idea that if we are worried about there being a bottom or not a bottom, then that kind of is an indication about our beliefs about where our safety is sourced. Hmm. So if our safety is sourced in our own body, like I have the ability in my body to create my own safety, of course, under certain conditions. I mean, if you're in the middle of the Colorado River, <laughs> you know, the, the velocity is beyond your ability to control. But but in a general triathlon scenario, you know, I have the ability in my own body to create my own safety. So I, I have my safety here in my own self, and I am always with myself, so I have it there whenever I need it. Versus uh, deriving my safety from the bottom or from the wall in the pool or the lane line or someone else like a kayaker, someone like that. Yeah, you know, so you're able to, and I always talk about it with with my swimmers in terms of a a continuum. And they say in the shallow and like, well, you know, I really need to have the bottom right now. I just I'm not comfortable in deep water. I'm like, no problem, you know, totally love that. Like like, just really feel the safety that you're getting from the bottom. Once you get really comfortable and you know you've got that safety and you learn how to use your back float and you learn how to prevent panic and all this, where you do have safety, you're going to slowly move that needle to the right. You're going to move it further and further away to, from the bottom in the wall to yourself. And once you're 100% that where you have your safety derived in yourself and sourcing in yourself, that's where you can, you can be comfortable in a lot of different environments. Because... You're the one that's doing it, not the. you're not relying on anything else for your safety.
2: Yeah, it's a classic locus of control problem where you're you're encouraging folks to, you know, to understand that they they have the the ability and uh, and uh, really the control over the situation, Uh, of course, with the caveat of being outside the Colorado River.
0: Yes. And a complete converse to what I just said. And for example, as I went on a scuba diving trip with my husband and some other people some years ago, and I was a new diver. I had not, never been certified, but we did it for the trip um, before we left. And I was pretty uncomfortable scuba diving because you know why? Your safety is derived on that unit that you're wearing, yeah. and I was used to having it in my own self. I was not used to having to rely on something else other than my body, Interesting. and so I felt exactly the opposite of this, where I was like, I'm not comfortable right now.
2: <laughs> yeah, it cuts both ways, doesn't it?
1: Huh. The, the other interesting point I bring up there is kind of the fears that I have, which are um, nothing to do with the bottom, but uh, just other things in the water. And this is something I used to be embarrassed about, but I'll freely talk about it because I know other people have the same thoughts. But uh, just when you're you're swimming along, I would rather see everything or nothing. Um, <laughs> the in-between is what terrifies me when you're swimming along and all of a sudden out of the murky depths, you see <laughs> a tree branch or something sticking up. And you're in the middle of the lake and you're like, why is there a tree below me right now? But uh, well, that, that, that kind happening?
0: of... Coming
1: to get me, yeah, yeah. So it's it's that um, that partial exposure that kind of gets me. It's just like if I can see weeds or if I touch something that kind of freaks me out. Except not in a race, oddly. Um, that's the one time that I can ignore pretty much anything. But recreational swimming, especially when I'm on my own, that just drives me nuts. Um, and that is like the single biggest fear I have right now with getting in the water. And I know that a good friend of mine, who's a, a former varsity swimmer. Um, he actually has the same issue, like he's extremely comfortable when it comes to racing, but uh he just he also hates things that touch him or things that appear out of nowhere um so no it 's not just me, but uh but it is maybe just the lack of control of your environment, so similar problem, similar psychology, but not so much the fear of safety or at least not the the safety part that I'm in control of um because I know that I can swim, but I just don't know what else or even when I do know what else is out there. I'm still freaked out. And it's funny because like I can feel my heart rate go up. I can feel other physiological effects like the fight or flight come in. And it's such a weird experience for me.
0: Yeah, that's right. Well, and what you just said there about those other things that we talked about a second ago about the idea that you have the safety in your body. So what you're talking about is do other things in my environment have the ability to remove me from feeling like I'm in control of my own safety? Mm -hmm. Like in that case, that's what's happening is you're you do have your safety possibly you know not don't know for sure but derived in your own body you know it's derived there or maybe you know now you know and but but it's like okay well once that something upsets the apple cart you know then can i can i bring myself back to calm and how do i do that and so in the book we talk about five different we call them the five circles or melons method my co-author her name is mary ellen but it goes by melon which is awesome <laughs> um and yeah, she's fantastic. She, she has a method that she's developed called the five circles. And it's the basis of miracle swimming. And it kind of pictures people um, in, in a continuum from first circle to fifth circle. And the first circle is about where you are when you're calm. It basically means that your mental self and your physical self are in one place together. They're in one place. So your physical self, that's your body, and your mental presence of mind, whatever you want to call it, is together. And as you progress to second, third, fourth, fifth uh, circles, you're losing that connection but from to your mental self. So that's kind of removing further and further away from your physical body. So in the fifth circle, that would be be panic. So it would be like calm in first circle, nervous in second, afraid in third, terrified in fourth, and then panic in fifth circle. And the point being that in the fifth circle, you're not really in control of when you come back to first circle. So, so, in your case, talking about being you know worried about these items in the water, what we recommend is kind of just everyone always keep in first circle as much as you can. You want to stay connected to your physical body in that first circle. So when you start feeling these questions like, oh, if I'm standing on the beach and I'm worried about you know these trees in the water that seem scary or whatever else, else there is in there that's gonna you know poke me or you know hit me as I'm swimming, then I'm no, I'm starting to notice, hey, I might be in second circle and I haven't even really gotten in the water yet can i bring myself back to first circle and bring myself back to that level of control which is what you have when you're in first circle you have all the control you need and can i do that and always try to remain there and not let myself do things in third or fourth circle because there's where we don't have as much control
2: hmm that makes great that makes a ton of sense it's uh it's a um, it's very similar to a lot of you know mindfulness training that we hear about for you know non sporting things
0: yes Yes. Mindfulness. Exactly. That is the, that is a great word to describe this idea of staying mindful, staying in your body. We, the wording that, you know, miracle swimming is staying in your body, staying with your physical self. And we see this, for example, if someone is swimming across the pool or in triathlete case, swimming across the lake, and they really want to be at the other side, but their physical self is not there yet. It's right here, wherever they are. And so if you can train yourself, like you said, mindfulness training to, to stay where you are, and the key to it is feeling what you feel in that moment, physically from your senses. Feel the pressure of your arms against the water. Feel the coolness of the water. Feel the you know breeze that's coming by, or the chop and the waves, and all of that. And staying present—that's what keeps you connected to your physical body, so that you don't move into these other circles and lose control.
2: So, Ellie, we've uh, you, we've started really to dive into the process, and then earlier on, we were just hinting at, at certain elements of the process. But can you give us a taste of uh, if we were to you know give you a case study of, well, um, let's say I'm, I'm going to use myself in this case. Uh, for instance, I, uh, I'm fairly comfortable in, uh, in open water, uh, provided I've had my minimum of two weeks of <laughs> swim training before, yeah. before the race comes in. Um, my, uh, so I would say like I'm in the first circle most of the time. My personal anxiety and i've I've actually been very careful in selecting races to avoid this is a non wetsuit swim so i'm and this is this i think ties to your um uh your your excellent point about knowing that you have control and that the the control of the situation is entirely in your body in most in most situations. Um, and I, I really do relinquish some of that control to this, this life jacket, this hydrophobic life jacket that I'm wearing all over my body, basically that I know that in this thing, I will not sink because I am now positively buoyant. Whereas, you know, as a runner cyclist male, um, who, you know, doesn't have the body fat percentage he once did, <laughs> but still, still cannot float. I, I, there's, you know, I've tried this, I've tried the, the float on my back. I've had people instruct me a hundred times and it just, I, my, my legs will sink, you know, they're just, they're, you know, cyclist legs. And, um, without a wetsuit in a wetsuit, I can float. No problem, obviously, because of the, the added buoyancy. So my, uh, my issue is in a non wetsuit swim, I would feel quite uncomfortable and I've practiced it a little bit and I can sort of do it in training. I mean, you know, it doesn't it doesn't cause me mass anxiety, but it's certainly if we're if we're using the five circles analogy, I'm no longer in first circle. I'm probably in like second slash third if I'm doing a non wetsuit swim. So, if you have an athlete like me, and I think this is a fairly common pro- issue with uh with with folks, um, take me through the process. And obviously, you know, you're 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 selling books, so you don't have to give a, you don't have to give away the farm. But just uh, give us a taste of what that would look like.
0: No, I'm glad to give away the farm. We're very, we're very open with it. Our goal in writing the book, of course, if anyone's written a book out there, you know, it's not about the money. It's about getting the word out to people so that they can be safe and have fun and enjoy the sport. I mean, I think, so the first part, what you said about about your um, body composition is super important. So this is really key. So there's really, you know, how everyone always says there are two kinds of people in the world. Well, there are in this there are sinkers and there are floaters. And there really are. That's the two types <laughs> of body. And sinkers have usually got pretty low body fat. And they also sometimes have more dense bones or larger bones. And then your floaters are someone who has more fat on their bodies, but everyone has air. So the two things that make us float are air and fat. So right. the floaters have enough fat to offset the rest of their body mass. The sinkers do not. But it's a very low percentage of people that are sinkers. It's like two-something percent of the population are sinkers. And if you think about, you know, there are people out there that are sinkers who are very good swimmers. And can you think of who those could be?
2: Probably all the low-body fat, you know, high-level triathletes or swimmers?
0: Yeah, the entire U.S. team probably, yeah. (laughs) They're all super low-body fat. Um, But they're excellent swimmers. So it doesn't mean that someone who's a sinker – can't swim. It just means that sure. float when they hold their breath and they're at the top of the water and they don't do anything. They don't don't move their body. They just hold a big, big old breath. They are going to probably sink to the bottom. A floater, when they hold their breath and just hold still and don't do anything, they will stay floating. That doesn't mean they float horizontally. Depending on your body composition, hmm. you might be floating vertically um, because if you don't have a lot of fat in your legs then or rear end, then you're going to float more vertically. It's just a different shape. But a sinker really will sink right to the bottom and that again doesn't mean they can't swim it just means that when they're on their back and they want to rest they're going to have to move just a little as easily as they can to use as little energy as possible just to keep their face out of the water so that they can breathe a floater doesn't really have to move at all to keep to keep their face out of the water I'm somewhere in between so I have a you can't see me but I'm fairly thin and so for me I float when I'm holding my breath and when I exhale I sink or I sink I go underwater my face goes underwater right so I have to use just a little bit of a sculling motion in my almost vertical back float in order to keep my face out so that I can breathe and um, and this is a very um, this I this dichotomy between floaters and sinkers is, is kind of not very well known. I actually met a lifeguard who had been told by his train his lifeguard trainer, the instructor, that he should be able to float. Just take a bigger breath. Just take a big breath. And the guy, the lifeguard, was one of our nationally ranked wrestlers a number of years ago and he has almost no body fat and he's a nationally ranked wrestler and he's tons of muscle. So he doesn't float. And, and so it wasn't the guy's fault that he didn't float. And that wasn't the lifeguard instructor's fault to not know that, but it's just the physics of it is not very well understood. So in your case with the wetsuit, like you said, you may very well be a sinker. If your legs don't float at the surface, that may not mean that you're not a floater. They might just be more vertical. Yes. So I'd be really interested to see what you look like in the pool without a wetsuit, just holding your breath and kind of just hanging out. I meant,
2: I meant I couldn't do a horizontal float. Cause I was, you know, growing up, I was told like, everyone can do a horizontal float. I'm like, no, sorry, I can't. Yeah. Um, but I could probably with a lung full of air, I could probably vertically float and, and Yeah. I mean, with, I can definitely do it with the minimum skull. I don't, you know, without even moving my legs vertically, totally can do that. I've done that many, many times, but, uh, um, with a wetsuit, I can horizontally back float, which is great.
0: (laughs) And it just feels better. Yeah. And, but the key is the most important part of your body that you want to keep out of the water when you're trying to float is your, is your nose and mouth. That's it. We don't care about any other part. As long as that part's out, you got that. You got that air because that's what we all need when we're, you know, stressed about survival in the water is air. Of course. Yeah, So that's the piece that seems to be not very well understood, but that is helpful with the wetsuit conundrum. Like you said, where I feel like, yeah, I need my wetsuit to be able to float. Well, it might be true that you could float without it, not as um, not as horizontally, but you probably float just as well, mm-hmm. or just a little bit, a little bit of effort, and you could have the same safety feeling in your own body without the wetsuit.
1: So it sounds like this would be an excellent uh, training tool to use or training method to use just to become more comfortable. So just go into the pool and try and float for a while, or probably an even better training stimulus would be doing a fairly hard set and then floating um, so that you go in a little bit fatigued, a little bit tired, but near the wall so that you have that escape, but just understanding that feeling and how you can bring yourself back down to a calm level Um, by exerting minimal effort that is
0: so gold andrew that's exactly it yeah totally using it playing with it in your training and seeing like what am i am i a floater or sinker do i know and then trying it out in the shallow end where you feel really safe and controlled and then like you said yeah working it into some heavier sets where you are absolutely relying on it for your safety and feeling like you can use that anytime you want when you're in the open water and you know how to use it because you've done it a ton of times in the pool that's a great
1: idea So very interestingly, some of my anxiety with swimming has come from the wetsuit itself. Um, So I know it it lends a little bit of safety and buoyancy, but actually the feeling of constriction and not being able to take a deep breath as comfortably, especially when you start hyperventilating or getting um, this fight or flight response, when you want a deep breath, you want to fill your lungs, but it's just that little bit of pressure. um, And this is what caused the big disaster in my first race. I just started to panic where it was like, oh my God, I'm in the water. I can't breathe. What's going on? I thought I was prepared for training and I was starting to question everything I had done. Um, but once I managed to catch my breath, I realized, okay, this isn't nearly as bad as I thought. Um, I can get through this, but that initial wave of fear just rolls over you and you lose the ability to make good choices really.
0: Yeah. That's so hard. I'm so sorry that happened to you. And, um, for a just kind of giving people advice for kind of how they would handle it. You know, it really comes from kind of from the beginning, and I don't know how often you were able, and depending on where you live in the country, sometimes it's not possible to use your wetsuit a whole lot before race day, especially for early races. Um, The, you know, getting in it and getting used to it and swimming it in the pool quite a bit and, you know, for a little bit until you get, you know, too hot, you can't overheat. But swimming in it in the lake, using, you know, just in the shallow end where it feels really comfortable and safe, of course, with an onshore observer or someone there with you, you know, just really like getting used to it so that the the wetsuit itself isn't a new variable for the race day um can help i know for a lot of people it could happen even if they've used their wetsuit but it really minimizes the idea that it's a new thing or that it feels different and cold on the day that you that you want you already have you know kind of those race day excited jitters going Um, but and two um we talk about this in the book the idea about um kind of only doing what you're comfortable with in the moment so So part of staying in first circle is not only feeling what you feel in your body from your senses, but also paying attention to what your mind is telling you about how comfortable you are to do this thing. And so I'm guessing that in the moment before, maybe the weeks before, it was like, well, I don't really feel super comfortable about this race, I'm nervous about this wetsuit, or maybe... Um, maybe just race morning, like I'm, I'm not comfortable and sort of listening to that little voice and saying, okay, is this a good idea? Should I should I do this thing where I'm not in first circle? I know that I don't have as much control when I'm not in first circle. Am I okay with that? And, and you may well be, you just may know that you have a risk of moving to the third or fourth circle if you begin something that when you're not in first circle. So what I recommend is for athletes to practice beforehand and using their wetsuit in a place that feels really safe and comfortable and just stepping through. And each time they're doing the next thing, asking like, does this feel good to me? Does this feel fun and safe? Is this what I want to do? And then, you know, you minimize the chance that, that on race day, you might answer that differently for yourself.
1: And the, uh, the failing there is completely on myself. I didn't take the time, didn't have the familiarity with it in open water beforehand. Um, so i I tried it out and I tried transitions and and doing things like that at home, but just not getting into the open water, um, especially doing a hard swim in open water where uh where I was having to breathe harder so that feeling was very unfamiliar to me and it uh it drove me over the edge, but it could have easily been corrected by preparing properly and that 's the the really good thing to come of this is that everyone i 've spoken to who 's just getting into the sport, I tell them. Okay, don't do what I did. Uh, go and try it in open water. Go and get comfortable with it. You know, even if you're at the beach or sitting in a, a pool, and just get used to the feeling of floating. And once you become more accustomed to that feeling, you're much less likely to get into a situation that overwhelms you that that I experienced. Um, and I, I got through it. Um, I just had to recenter myself and. Uh, be able to refocus, but it did take some time. And it was a big surprise because I thought going in that I was a decent swimmer. Um, looking back, I was not a decent swimmer, but, uh, I had that feeling and it was just a bit of a blow to the confidence and ego. And I think that's what pushed me off center. And then it just spiraled from there. But, um, <clears throat> Certainly with other people, I always recommend to, to test out race conditions before you actually get to the race, especially if it's your first race.
2: On the subject of uh, wetsuits, I just want to make a, a, a side note. So wetsuits are incredibly sensitive or, you know, your experience with wetsuits is incredibly sensitive to wetsuit fit, um, which is not a straightforward proposition, certainly for, for beginners, um, people who've never worn a wetsuit before, even if you've, you know, practiced, um, you know, if you there's a there's a bit of a spectrum on on recommendations for how they should fit but certainly for optimal performance they should be quite snug you want a little bit of water coming in but you don't want like a continuous circulation of uh, of water in it so there is a little bit of that compression that that is um, necessary for performance. Cause then they end up being, you know, if, if they are, if you're scooping water consistently, especially with through the neck opening, um, then you, you are actually compromising performance quite a bit. Uh, but so fit's really important and finding that balance between, you know, your comfort level and the, the tightness of the, of the suit. Uh, but also there are slightly different designs specifically around, um, that key neck opening and, uh, this is pure speculation on my part, but I suspect uh, what what's going on in the in that feeling of of restricted breathing. Part of it may be the compression around the chest and diaphragm, probably not diaphragm too much. But I suspect the biggest key is the um, the compression on the neck. and so it's almost like a choking sensation that is so uncomfortable for most people and there are there are some suits that are that that have less compression around the neck while still not acting as a as a scoop for the water, so trying on different suits is really a good idea, but also the way that you put a suit on so for for example, um, you know a trick that I really like is once you get it all zipped up and you're you know all de wrinkle yourself and you 've actually got a little bit of water in the suit. Um, trying to bring as much of the material from uh, on, on your front, from your crotch and your belly area up into your chest and up into the neck so that you can almost, you know, relax some of the, uh, some of the elastic pressure on that neckline really goes a long way to relieving that, that stretch around the neck. And again, purely speculation over here, but, uh, I suspect that it's that feeling of, of constriction around the neck that, that causes that, that, triggers that instinct of uh, of suffocation or insufficient uh, oxygen supply.
1: And for getting that good fit as well, um, or the good distribution on your body, the other thing that I've noticed is quite often on race day, like you're rushing around in the morning. You're In some races, you're already sweating because it's a hot, humid day, especially in Ontario. Um, but you're, you've got this layer of sweat, so things stick, and you can't get it with the right distribution. But as soon as you hop in the water, um, what I do is I'll take either the neck or the legs and I flap them to pump water into the suit and you build up this lubrication layer of water that kind of inflates the suit a little bit and it doesn't last a ton of time, but it allows you to easily shift things around so you get a, a comfortable tension distribution Yeah, good. compression distribution. Yeah. Um, so that for me makes me feel a hundred percent better. Uh, and that's one of the little tricks I picked up, but there's some races that you're not allowed in the water beforehand and that's. Not something you should rely on, just like a power meter where you can't always rely on having that. But if you can take advantage of it, then I definitely recommend it.
2: That's when you bring a bottle of water with you and pour it into your suit. Um, Also, really good on cold races because it, you know, it's that layer of water that keeps you well. I mean, it's the water plus the the neoprene insulation, but, um, yeah, on races where you're not allowed in the water, a really nice hack and Ali, I'm sorry, we're totally getting off topic No,
0: Actually I was, um, that's fine. I was just thinking when you were talking about, um, the feelings that you have that, yeah, those are great examples of, listening to your body in terms of I'm feeling these things and then are those life-threatening things, this feeling where I have where it feels like I'm being choked, it feels like my chest is being compressed, it feels like, you know, these things are happening. Is that life-threatening or isn't it? And when you're in that moment, it's hard to make that like objective you know analysis when you already have race, thick dinners, like you said all this stuff going on. It's better to do that in a training day, out at the lake with your friends, we're having a fun, comfortable day. And so um yeah, that's that's just a great, a great way to kind of bring yourself back to that first circle and feel like what's really I am feeling these things, but but am I not able to breathe? Can I go back to first circle and use my breath to bring myself back and calm myself um and just get a hold of like what's really real right now.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, I want to come back to something that Andrew alluded to in his experience, his initial experience with, you know, not, not having a great race, uh, great race swim on his first race and that's, uh, intensity, right? So I, I'm willing to bet from my own experience and that of, of folks that I work with that, um, coming back to that first circle, you know, when you're sitting in your, you know, in, as I am in my basement and it's fairly quiet upstairs and the kids, I think, are watching some TV and, uh, you know, everything's going according to plan, I feel, I feel pretty centered right now or in, in the first circle. But if I'm, um, if it's a race start and my anxiety is already, you know, kind of elevated as, as I actually believe it should be a little bit, you don't want to be super blase about race starts. Um, and then you start off, and depending on the distance you're swimming and your capability as a swimmer, you know, especially if it's short course and you're on the pointy end, and you want to start hard, um, that anxiety coupled with the high physical effort, um, you know, it might be an all-out race to the far to the first turn. Um, that situation is much much more difficult to then if you do run into trouble to to get yourself back into. Uh, you know, into that first circle. So, what's your advice for maybe somewhat more advanced swimmers who are faster, who 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 have to deal with the you know cl- all out or close to all out first yeah, hundred right. meters or so. And then, and then running into anxiety, maybe maybe at that first turn, right, Where, which could be congested if you're not the first human to to get to it.
0: That's right. That's exactly it. Um, yeah. So my advice would be, first of all, like we talked about in pre-show, really having a good warm up, just getting your heart rate up already, um, getting you yourself your physical body warm, so you're pushing that blood out from your inner. A core out to your skeletal muscles and extremities so that your cardiovascular system is already moving mm-hmm. that's the first thing uh, to warm up the second one is to um really just be um mindful of kind of how you're feeling as you, as you as you get going like am i am i feeling nervous and jitters and and when we have nervous and jitters i was just speaking to someone about this the other day uh this came from a talk that i listened to i didn't make this up but it's the idea that nervousness is is really where we are expecting a bad outcome and excitement is where we're expecting a good outcome, but they feel hmm. really similar. It's the physiological feel exactly the same. And so you're just expecting a different outcome. So the second circle can be a fun place to be. It can be a good place. We think of like roller coasters or maybe even a haunted house, It's like it's kind of, you know, but it's fun. <laughs> and so you can be in that, that space, that second circle, and it can be a fun place. Once you get to third, that's a, not a fun and you're not in much control. Uh, so when, you're, when I'm saying we want to be aware of how we feel as we start the race – really thinking about what are my expectations? Am I expecting this to go great and I'm going to have a blast with it and it's going to be awesome? Or am I like, Oh crap, here we go. You know? So just changing your, your your internal self talk about it and talking, talking to yourself differently and preparing yourself. Hey, I've done a bunch of these swims around a buoy with other people. I'm ready for this. And are you, have you trained with friends in the pool where you're very close to them in physical proximity? You know, are you ready? You know, all of those kinds of getting ready and then being mentally ready just, I guess readiness would be the the sum up of my advice there. Just really making sure you have a lot of readiness in your mind and in your body.
2: I like it. Um, so we've done, I think, uh, a, a, a fair job of uh, of talking about very specific cases, but I want to jump back to um, you know the the book and the system as a whole. And is it, uh, it you know, like I said, we've we've done some ad hoc examples, but uh, can you talk a little bit about the systematized approach that you would? You know, if you don't don't really know anything about the individual, and you know, you know, it's not like they're worried about swimming without a wetsuit or they're worried about starting hard. Um, What's the what's the approach that you would treat with the very kind of middle of the road athlete? What's the process look like?
0: Yeah. So it starts kind of with the, the idea of not pushing yourself. So that would be kind of step one, okay. agree to not push yourself. And that's a hard one, especially for us, you know, as high performing people, <laughs> it's very hard to say I'm willing to not push myself. And because being pushy with ourselves in other ways has led to great success in all the things that we've done in school and in life. But in learning how to conquer your fear of water, and um, it's, pushing doesn't really work. With fear, pushing isn't a successful attribute. So what we want to do is go slowly and let ourselves be where we are. And what happens is, as you go slowly and kind of let yourself be where you are, you actually become curious about what the next step is. So if I was working with someone who's just getting started, the first thing is to agree, we're going to try to stay in first or second, if it's fun, circle. so that, And we're not going to push ourselves to do anything that makes us feel scared. And because of that, we're going to move faster than we would if we did push through. And we're going to be more successful and we're going to get where we want to go quicker. So agreeing, number one, to start there. And then allowing yourself to go through the very stepwise process of each of the different items that provide you success and safety in water. So let's just start in the shallow end. Let's put our face in. Do we like putting our face in? are we uncomfortable putting our face in? There are a lot of really awesome swimmers I worked with who just hate their face in the water and you can't have first circle if you're already in second or third in terms of not wanting to be there um, with your face in the water. So start there. Like let's find out why is your face not comfortable? Are you, does it feel weird? Is your ear, are your ears uncomfortable? Are you getting water up your nose? Like what are the issues there? And then go to the next step, which would be kind of doing a front float. How does that feel? What's our buoyancy like? Like we talked about earlier. Going through the step of floating and then adding some propulsion to that float. Can I feel how once I have my float, I'm pulling myself through the water? Or in your case, if I'm not a really, you know, high floater, I can feel, though, how when I move myself through the water, it doesn't take a lot of energy to pull myself forward. And I can go through that and moved into you then using your back float for your safety and go stepwise through. Do I feel comfortable rolling onto my back? How do I feel about getting onto my back? Does that feel good to my nose? You know, all of those like things where you begin in the pool, where you feel really good to make sure that those baseline fundamentals are solid. And then agreeing to become curious about the next step was, well, okay, what would happen at the lake where I'm in the shallow and what feels good there? And can I step through these safety things of understanding the float and using of my back float and deriving safety for myself in the shallow in the lake? And then how about in the deep that's just offshore where I'm really close, I can just zip right back if I start to go to second or third circle. And a lot of people, you know, when we talk about this to our athletes and say, you know, we're going to agree not to push ourselves, they're like, but if I don't push myself, how am I ever going to get you know, where I want to go, how am I going to move forward? And the answer is that you just will, we've just seen it too many times, you know, you just will, you're, you'll just want to be curious about what the next step is. And I gave this example in the book. And it's the idea that um, there was an Italian teacher named Maria Montessori, which if you have young kids, you may be familiar with. She had a method of teaching children based on kids' innate interest and curiosity about their world. And they move to the next thing just because they want to know. And they are curious about what's next, what's next. And that doesn't go away just because you've grown up. You still have that innate curiosity to what's next. So when you let yourself be in these moments, in these little steps, one at a time, moving toward what you want to do, which is swim around a lot of people in a really fast way, you will be curious about what the next step is. You won't get stuck for long, because if you're committed to not doing what's scary, you'll always be able to return to first circle and you'll move forward.
2: I love it, and that's just a uh, just a reminder to our listeners that process is separate from the. And I love this word. I'm going to start. I'm totally stealing it. The choreography of swimming. There you go. Um, this is purely purely being comfortable. You know, and and fo and focusing the understanding that the control of your safety is in your hands when you're in the water. So those are those are two you know kind of decoupled things, and this is what you were just talking about, right, Allie?
0: That's right. And freestyle, if you think about it, the only reason we use it is it's just the fastest stroke there is. Yeah, butterfly is almost as fast, but no one swims fly. It's too hard.
2: <laughs> but- it's way, way too much work.
0: There's no reason that we have to use freestyle. We can use breaststroke. We can use backstroke. We can, no one's handing out shirts for people only using freestyle and medals. You know, everyone gets a shirt and a medal. We and we just use it because it's faster. So if freestyle is causing someone stress because they're not quite, their technique isn't there and they're getting water in their mouth or nose, hey, back up, use some breaststroke, learn that stroke, feel really great with it. And then progress to teaching, you know, having a good coach or teaching yourself some good freestyle and, and just the next step you know one at a time learning how the different choreographies work and how they work for you uh, but like you said if you're, you know you're understanding the basis of the choreographies then once you add the choreography that's just like you being a dancer at a wedding you can anyone could do the you know chicken dance <laughs> but <laughs> or learn how to waltz or do some fancy stuff that takes a little more time and effort and but it's not necessary you can still participate doing the chicken dance
2: Totally. And a quick PSA for uh, for all of our breaststrokers out there. Uh, breaststroke's awesome, but if you're, you know, if you're a strong breaststroker, don't swim through a bunch of slower folks because you're gonna, True. you're you're not gonna oh, make yeah. a lot of friends uh, if you do that <laughs> you're gonna like, by so kicking hard. them in the head. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. The other, I just want to mention this because you brought it up. But the other pet peeve I have is people who are swimming freestyle and all of a sudden throw in a butterfly kick every <laughs> once in a while, where you just get. Uh, I actually got basically a charlie horse in the middle of my Cozumel swim because I was on someone's hip and he just decided to kick out to the side all of a sudden and I don't think he knew I was there but it was it it landed very (laughs) solidly on my my he was worried about you catching him on the bike I think like I take him out yeah yeah something like that
0: Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, um, bringing up the idea of other people and their effects on your feelings of your own safety. Because in Mm -hmm. your case, we're laughing about it now. And I hope that it was funny at the time. You're like, dang, that guy really got me. Uh, And you weren't like, oh, gosh, you know, what about my safety? Because, um, yeah, no one has, as I tell my athletes, no one can dull your sparkle. No one has the ability to take away your safety. I mean, unless they're literally holding their hands above your head and pushing down. Someone who's swimming past you and is kicking you, that's a a first, second circle issue. That's coming to terms with it in in your own mind and saying, hey, nothing someone else is going to do is going to take away what I have. I have safety and I can create my own safety. And you kick me and you, you know, hit my head with your hand as often as you want, but that's not gonna, that's not life threatening. It's just annoying.
1: Yeah. And it, it does trigger very foreign feelings for me. Um, like it does trigger the fight or flight. And I get really pissed off when people are <laughs> smacking me. And you you almost want to retaliate. And then I just kind of take a deep breath, well, as deep a breath as I can take while <laughs> I'm swimming, but uh, um, and just think, like, okay, what can I actually accomplish by? you know, pushing back or trying to swim over top of this person and really nothing, it's going to slow both of you down.
0: Yeah. You have the most control in first circle. So when your anger takes you out of your body, you don't have as much control. So you talk to them as fast.
1: Yeah. So the uh, the, the thought of other people taking you out of your first circle or what other people are going through taking you out of your first circle brings up um, a very unfortunate event that I went through at Ironman Cozumel. And someone passed away very early in the swim. Um, so, and I actually looked up the timing chip and they started about two minutes before I did. So I would have gone right past this person as they were struggling. So um, there's there's a lot of debate about what actually causes otherwise accomplished swimmers, uh, very comfortable swimmers to run into this distress Um, So maybe commenting on the specific causes, um, that's not something we want to venture into, but looking at the psychology of how it impacts other swimmers, because you think, okay, well, I'm a good swimmer too. And someone else ran into trouble, like what's preventing me from getting to this spot. Um, And it did have a bit of an impact on me after the race thinking like, this could have potentially been myself uh, in that situation. So how w- what would you recommend to people who do see events like that and are concerned about that?
0: Yeah, I'm so sorry about that. That's just so sad and so unfortunate. And that's the main reason why we wrote this book was to you know help people be able to take control of their own safety and feel comfortable in the water and not have a place of anxiety where they get into a, a fear situation, which potentially, like you said, we don't know for sure, but which potentially contributes to situations like that. So my recommendation for people who have kind of seen that happen and who are thinking, well, that could be me is you, like we said, we don't have control over other people, but we do have control over our own selves. And you have the best chance of, of being as safe as you possibly can by uh, doing the things we're talking about, by only letting yourself do things which Seem like fun, which sound like fun and which excite you and don't make you nervous and and afraid, second, third, fourth, fifth circle of panic, Uh, things that sound like fun. So that's a good place to kind of talk about the the idea that sometimes in triathlon, there's a sense of bravado and pushing, which maybe isn't as helpful where we kind of say, yeah, I'm super afraid of this race. I'm just going to sign up for it. And then I've got 11 months to get ready and get unafraid. And, um, just, you know, intuitively, it doesn't seem like a good thing to really push ourselves through something that's, that's going to cause us fear. And I'm not saying that's what happened with that person. I'm sure they were a very accomplished swimmer, uh, but, um, or it could have been, but we want to be careful and, and just, you know, really making sure that we're not pushing ourselves into something that we're not ready for, whether it's in the moment, whether it's next year, we're, we're allowing ourselves to, to do what sounds like fun. And, and if you can, if you really do that, then that thing that happened to that person, unless you have a heart condition or there's something else that's, you know, really not a good health thing for you, you'll be able to maintain your control. That isn't going to happen to you because you have the, you have the safety in your own body. You have the ability to bring yourself back from panic. Uh, those are the keys to safety in the water. And if you have that, you're, you're just, that's just not going to happen to you. If you've got, you know, all the things that you're in control of, you're the most in control of. There, like we said, there are factors that you are not in control of. The water conditions being one of them, in terms of wave action and um, things like that. But when you do come upon something that you're out of, that you're not in control of, you have a better chance of surviving it because you have the most control you possibly can in your own body. Does that help?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it is an interesting problem, and in the. the- the retention of control, I think, is something that as triathletes, as very type A people, um, everyone wants to have that control and, and finding a way to at least provide the, the mental, like the mindset to, to, to know that you have maybe a somewhat limited scope in what you can control, but there, there are things that you can control. That probably helps people to, to think of that and to put that in their, the forefront of their brain.
0: Yeah, yeah, and there's going to be there are going to be things that we just don't have control, and we do it every day. We take calculated risk in everything that we do, and triathlon is no exception. So we're accepting the risk of going out and doing this thing. We're getting on our bike. There's traffic. We're running. You know, we're doing things that are they're inherently risky, but we're willing to accept the risk. And we're, there's certain risks we are willing to accept, and certain we aren't, or certain ones we aren't. And so that's kind of what I'm saying, I guess, in this scenario about it, there being possible um circumstances in the water that are unfortunate is we're always taking that risk but we know we're going in with our eyes open and we know we have the skills that that we we have all the skills that we need to be able to be as safe as we can in the moment Um, and then we just go for we either decide to go forward knowing that we have those skills and knowing there's risk or we decide we don't and deciding you don't is a very valid um answer to that in fact you know it's okay to say look i'm i want to do this race this year but the last time i did a race i had a really bad experience Maybe I better just take some time and sort out what happened rather than go ahead and sign up and just be like, well, it'll be August. I'll figure it out by then. Um, just, just listening to your, that little person in your body that does or doesn't want to do it and just going along with what they say and, and going at your pace.
1: And along that point, the the other thing I want to bring up is just the control over circumstances or the understanding of when you might be losing control or losing that comfort zone. Um, this doesn't particularly relate to swimming, but uh, there was a very hot race in Kingston, Ontario that I did a couple of years ago, and the water was warm, and it was marginal for wetsuit swim, and i I tend to build up a lot of heat, um so that's something we've discussed at great length in other podcast episodes but um i I was overheating at the end of the bike and like it was already thirty Celsius by nine a m um super humid, just very uncomfortable and I kind of did a a self assessment at the end of the bike leg and i said no this this run isn't happening. this is not a good idea right now, and it sucks. it was my first ever d n f but I don't regret it because I I did this mental assessment and I said, I'm going to be putting myself in a situation I'm uncomfortable with. It's going to be a bit of a blow to the ego, but at the same time, I don't want to end up with heat stroke or I don't want to put myself through this suffering that is not beneficial for me. Like there's certain suffering with running that you can or biking that you can get through and that feels like an accomplishment, but some of the heat suffering, I think, where you know you're on the edge of something a little bit dangerous, that's that's not a good situation. So I was able to pull back from that. And that's something I think the the understanding of my body and the, the maturity of racing for a few years has allowed me to fully perceive. But uh, I wouldn't have made that choice a couple of years prior. Um, and I may have put myself in a very unsafe situation. Wow, that
0: is gold. That is gold right there. Just making that good and safe decision about what's right for you. That's awesome. I love that you did that. I think that's really smart.
2: Yeah, agreed. Um, so listening to you talk about this, Ali, kind of my key takeaway is that we have a lot more control over the way we feel in, uh, in these situations than perhaps we think. And, but the, but it doesn't just happen. It's not an accident that it's a very deliberate, um, you know, it's a, it's a choice and it's something that, that, that requires practice. So there is, you know, if for, for folks who are listening, who, who have, and I mean, you can, you can extend this to beyond swimming, to any kind of, to anxiety about, you know, maybe other things as well, but, uh in the in the specific context of swimming, there there is a systematic method for improving your comfort in that environment. And comfort in that environment is not an accident. It is a it is a deliberate kind of practice of uh of taking these steps if this is something that you that you know uh, that affects your your performance or your enjoyment of uh triathlon or swimming in general.
0: I could not have said it better myself. That's exactly it. <laughs> Great summary. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, we're we're getting to that part of the episode. I know Andrew's got uh, Andrew's got a jet soon anyway. Um so Ali, thank you very much for uh, for taking the time and uh, and educating us on this subject which uh, I think is uh, you know we we spent a lot of time on the show talking about uh objective um you know metrics and uh, and performance improvements and marginal gains here and there uh but we, I think we can, and Andrew, and you and I have talked about this in the past. We 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 want to spend a little bit more time talking about the the less easily quantifiable um, tools that that we have available to us, if we know that they're there, to really improve uh, performance and enjoyment. And I think performance and enjoyment are kind of um, they they go hand in hand. Like if you're having a miserable time, you're not going to perform well. Um, and, uh, and vice versa, if you're having a great time, chances are you're going to have a very good race. So, um, yeah, Ali, thanks again. And, uh, I'm going to ask you for some information for contact information for where people can get in touch with you and how they can get a copy of your book. Um, where, what's the best way to do that?
0: So our website is conquer your fear of the triathlon That's the long name, but it's the same name as the book. So it's uh, <laughs> your fear of the triathlon and my personal website is readysetsweat.net Uh, and the book is available on Amazon. So you can hook, you can look it up on Amazon and hook yourself up with it. Perfect. And yeah, there
2: you go. And I'll put those links in the show notes folks. So you don't have to, you know, uh, figure out what all the, what, what the order of the words is <laughs> or, uh, <laughs> if there's any, if there's any dashes or, or pluralizations in there. So yeah, uh, that'll all be up in the show notes.
0: Thank you so much
2: guys. No, this is super educational. I loved it.
1: And admittedly, we, we typically focus on the bike and the run. And this is really nice to yeah, also true. dive into the swim. Sorry the, for the pun, but uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> it's something that we need to do more of. And I'm glad that we've, we've started to. Uh, no, not that. <laughs> There's more than enough of those. But yeah. Uh, <laughs>
0: Glad yep.
1: I could slide in with you. <laughs> there you go. Now you're you getting, getting it. it? <laughs> we need to have a special label on this podcast for warning puns.
2: Yeah, it's like you, there's, um, there's a tick box you can check whether or not it's um, it's explicit or not if we're using, you know, potty, potty talk. And on this one, this will be like, you know, pun talk warning. <laughs> Although it's not as bad as some we've done, I think.
0: Yes, it was a very deep
2: dive. <laughs> yes, yes. That one, that's an obvious one. Thank you for uh, for... For throwing that out there. Uh, so listeners, thank you very much as always for uh, for tuning in. Um, support the show by telling your friends, uh, rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you do get your podcasts. And if you want to show your financial support for the show, we are now on Patreon um, at patreon.com slash endurance innovation. And that link will be in the show notes as well. So as always, thanks for listening and we'll
1: uh, talk to you soon. Thanks everyone.